Anyway, we are at Luke 17 and verse 11, picking up in our study, teaching through the gospel of Luke, and it's been really rich for me. But here at verse 11, it says, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered and said, were we not all 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. You may be seated. So I was thinking about today's study. The Lord kind of put in my heart to go back some ways to our introduction to Luke. Uh, some of you are newer here. Some of you haven't really had this really, maybe you're a younger believer and you don't really understand but in the New Testament, we have four Gospels. And I'm saying this because it really relates to where we are today in our study. But we have four Gospels, all giving us the record, the written record of Jesus' life, his ministry, of course, his death and his resurrection. Now, we know that of the four, Matthew and John, those two alone, they were actually apostles. And that Mark gives us the account of Peter and that Luke was really a companion of Paul who did very uh, careful research from multiple sources in writing his account. But each of the Gospels add their own emphasis. When you're in Matthew, you have to talk about Jesus being the lion. He is the king of the Jews. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. In Mark, you have Jesus presented as the ox. He is the servant, the one who comes to serve. And Luke, he presents Jesus the man, stressing the humanity of Jesus. He is uh, called the Son of Man. And in John, you have the eagle, uh, Jesus, who is the Son of God. He comes right out of the chute, chapter 1. He starts there, Jesus is God, and he begins then to lay out the rest of his gospel. Now, three of the four gospels that you have are called synoptic gospels, and that is because they are very similar. That's Mark or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is unique among those gospels because of all the writers in the Bible, he is the only Gentile. He is a non-Jew. And together, along with his writing of Acts, Luke actually gives us about 28% of our New Testament. Isn't that incredible? Um, Luke was also an educated physician. We know this. He was an historian, very keen on factual research, um, writing his accounts. We don't know much of his personal history. We don't know when it was he got saved or how he got saved, but we do know is that he enters the account in Acts chapter 16, or where he writes himself, where he joins as a companion with Paul on his second missionary journey in Troas. And that point you begin to read that he's no longer talking about them and they, he's now talking about us and we. Now as a physician, he may have first met Paul, perhaps uh, to attend his physical needs, because Paul refers to him in Colossians 4, my beloved physician. Uh, he was, of course, had a tremendous relationship. He was with Paul throughout the, probably the rest of Paul's ministry. 
Now, we don't know when or how Luke first becomes a believer, but it is clear that when you go through Luke and you go through, uh, through Acts, that he does become a very passionate believer himself, just like the Apostle Paul. He has a heart for all sinners, Jews and Gentile alike. He wants them all to hear this gospel of truth. And while he was a Gentile, he demonstrates through his writing that he had a tremendous understanding of Judaism, that he understood the laws according to Moses. He understood the conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders from that perspective. And so he writes his gospel with an appeal to really the Greek mindset, trying to make it explainable to them why Jesus is actually their savior too. You know, Jesus is the savior of all sinners. He, in his genealogy, he doesn't take you back to just Abraham, the father of the Jews. He brings you all the way back to Adam. He wants you to know that in Adam, we're all connected. We have this connection. We're all sinners. We're sharing the same blood. Did you guys know that? We all have that same thing, and that's where sin comes in. Luke 19, 10 gives us the key verse where it says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So of the four gospels, Luke's gospel by far actually is the longest. It is the most comprehensive and chronological of all the gospels. He gives us a lot of things in his gospel that were not given in other gospels. And at the conclusion of John's gospel, he wrote this, and I love this. I always keep this in mind when I read the gospels, that John writes, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, there is so much they had to write about and so many things, they're just not always repeating each other, they're giving accounts from what they remember. And most of the teachings on the kingdom and the parables that you see in Luke, you don't find in the other gospels. You have, you know, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, you have uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin, and the prodigal son, the unfaithful steward, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, all these different stories. Luke gives them to us alone. He's trying to make a connection with the common man of letting you know Jesus is your savior too. No matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, he can be your savior as well. Now in these fat past few chapters, you know, Jesus has been emphasizing the truth, the principles regarding compassion, love, of course he's always dealing with love and compassion, but mercy and forgiveness and grace. You know, the knowing that God has a heart for sinners everywhere, and stark contrast really to the dead, sterile, powerless orthodoxy of the religious leaders that despise Jesus. Last week in our study, Jesus specifically addressed his disciples and all of his followers, you know, of letting them to know what a serious thing is, is to cause another brother to stumble into sin. He said, it's better to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause someone else to sin. So he talked about, don't be an offender but he says, if you're offended, make sure that you forgive those who offend you. Make sure that you're always forgiving them. And he says, forgive them not just once, but really in essence without limitation. That we're to forgive others in the same way that God forgives us, you know, unlimitedly. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad there isn't a certain number? He says, and I know sometimes you feel that way. It says, I think I just passed the number, man. I don't know, I don't know how he can forgive me anymore. I mean, it's, he's just done so much forgiving. And for my life, it's like, I, I, I passed that number a long time ago, what I was thinking. And, and he's just a very great and gracious God. When the apostles heard Jesus talk, telling them to forgive, 
forgive and keep on forgiving, they understood rightly that this kind of forgiveness, it doesn't come naturally. It's not something that you can do in your flesh. It's not something you can do in your self-will. Rather, it is an issue of faith. And so the apostles, when they heard Jesus, they said, increase our faith. They rightly understood that what Jesus commands his followers to do, he also provides with that the means to obey his commands by the power of the Holy Spirit. In response to their plea for increased faith, Jesus responds that just a little bit, a small little bit of faith has power to uproot the strong mulberry tree has power to uproot that strong bitterness root of unforgiveness you may have in your life. Just that little bit of faith can uproot the most powerful bitterness and unforgiveness. We define biblical faith as this. Biblical faith is believing and walking in the truth about God and trusting in his word in such a way that we're provoked to act and to live out our lives in accordance with the will and the purposes of God. That's faith. Jesus, if you remember, then concluded that session by reminding his disciples of the master-slave relationship. He reminded them that it is the slave who serves the will of the master, not the master who serves the will of the servant. Jesus is saying that when we are his disciples, when we love one another, when we rebuke one another, when we forgive each other, when we serve others, it should never be considered something that is extraordinary or something that we could think, well, I got some brownie points. I did really good. He said, no, when you do these things, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You're just being obedient. What you do as a disciple is you obey the Lord. At the very best, we can ever come before the Lord as unworthy servants. But when we do the will of God in, in obedience, we are doing what we're expected to do obeying our master. We don't do them to earn brownie points thinking somehow God owes me his favor. No, we do it simply because we belong to him. So when we pick up here right now in verse 11, the scene shifts now all the way back from chapter 14. We've been actually in one day. So we're now finally moving on here where he says, and while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. The page is turning. Back in chapter 9, we saw that Jesus, after the transfiguration, that he led his disciples and his followers out of Galilee, down from Galilee, for the last time. They would not be going back to Galilee until after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is going to be coming up at the following Passover. We saw in Luke 9.51 that when the days were approaching for its ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. You see, for Jesus, he knows his timing is essential, that there is a timing for what God wants him to do, that he would need to be there at Passover in Jerusalem because on this particular Passover, he is going to be their Passover lamb. From Samaria, Jesus and his followers, they travel east of the Jordan River to the region of Perea on the other side of the Jordan. So at this point in, in verse 11, uh, Jesus and his followers are now leaving Perea. They're making their way back over the Jordan where they find themselves in that kind of that border area between Samaria and Galilee. And this is where the event takes place in verse 12. And he entered a village 
and 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. Now as he enters the village here, there's these 10 lepers. And notice they're calling him from a distance. And they're asking him, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Of course, their need was obvious. You see, as lepers, it was important that they stay at a distance. If you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus had an encounter with a man with leprosy. At that time, in that culture, there was perhaps no greater threat, physical threat, of any fear disease more than leprosy, which was at that time considered incurable. You know, the root word from leper is scaly, and it describes some of the earliest symptoms of the, of the leprosy, which is scaly skin. But it was known to be chronic, an infectious disease characterized by sores, scabs, white shining spots, uh, skin accompanied by deadening of the nerves. Needless to say, you know, when he looked upon a leper, it was a chilling sight. It was something that I'm sure you thought, oh my Lord, wow. But it was a lifetime. The skin, the spots would lose their original color. They would turn thick and glossy and scaly and sickness would progress. These spots would become dirty sores and ulcers due to their poor blood supply. The skin, especially around their eyes and their ears, would bunch up with deep furrows, uh, kind of making this swell, the swelling of their body and their, uh, the afflictions began to resemble that of even a lion sometimes if you were to look at one. Their eyebrows and their eyelashes would disappear. And eventually certain nerves would cease to function, leaving this numbness or this sensitivity. So oftentimes what a leper could do, they could simply cut themselves without even knowing it. They could scratch off their own skin without even knowing it. Sometimes they lost limbs and other parts of their body because of it. By the way, it's interesting that leprosy in the scripture can also be used to illustrate sin because sin has that same kind of effect. You know, as you continue to sin, it deadens your nerves and your conscience to the point where you get colder and colder and colder to God. You need a great touch from God at that point. But it's that condition that really sets you apart. And then there were the smells, these rancid odors that would accompany them, their flesh beginning to rot, and they would, you know, people would pick up their odors from a great distance. Added to that is this common belief that it's contagious, it's communicable, it's, it's a disease that threatens the community at large. So they were forced to live in isolated spots with themselves or with other uh, lepers in quarantine. The law required that they had to make leprosy even more apparent. They had to warn people when they came into their presence. They had to wear mourning clothes. They had to leave their hair in disorder. Not a big deal today, right? But you had to do it then. You know, the men, they had to make sure their beards were covered. And as bad as all of that was, often their only means of survival is begging. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means they have to go places near the public so that they can appeal to their conscience, perhaps at the city gates or wherever, where the community was, but they were not allowed to be with the community. So it's this constant humiliation the Talmud, the compilation of rabbinical teachings of the law, forbid a Jew from coming closer than six feet. Isn't that interesting? 
I was, found that really to be interesting. Now, if the wind was blowing, it was 150 feet. So <laughs> a windy day could be a very lonely place. Everywhere they travel, they had to beg. And they come into sight with human beings, they had to cry out in an audible voice, real loud, unclean, unclean, warning, warning. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. There's, there's trouble. Watch out. I'm dangerous. I'm dirty. I'm contaminated. I am a threat to your health. They had to yell it out loud. Can you imagine anything more humiliating? Now, when we were teaching Luke 5, it was pre-COVID. But I think a lot of us can identify just a little bit more with what they must have felt and what life must have been. You know, COVID, we know this, that even the healthy have been quarantined. They're put on quarantine for, because of the potential of spread. But can you imagine if you were in that situation and COVID was there for the rest of your life and you had to go everywhere and tell everybody, COVID, po positive, positive. And you go to a store and you'd stand outside because it's the only place you can get somebody to give you help. You're begging for food. And there they would have to sit there and tell everybody, hey, I'm dirty, I'm dirty, I'm dirty. And people already, they already walk around you. They do everything they can to not be near you. But boy, when they saw you and you declared that you were dirty and you were positive with COVID, they would just out of the way. This is what these guys lived with every day. They lived this life. They had each other. They could look at each other, but they were excommunicated from their families from their synagogues, from their places of worship. So here in our study, as Jesus approaches this village, he hears this plea of 10 lepers. And they're at a distance. And if you think about it, what an awful sight that must have been to behold. You can only imagine the other disciples and followers watching this whole thing unfold and thinking, oh man, wow, look at this. To hear them cry out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. You see, they'd heard enough about Jesus by this time that they know that he is their only hope of ever having a life again. They're desperate. All they know is that they're on their own. There is no future. There is no hope. Jesus alone gives them hope for a future. In verse 14, when he, Jesus, saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, according to Leviticus 13, the Mosaic law, it had specific rules or proper cleansing of purification that if a leper was perhaps cured from his disease, they would have to go to the priest. If the symptoms of the leprosy showed that a person was in fact uh, tested positive for leprosy with other skin diseases, infectious diseases, Numbers 5.2 says, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. So if you're found with leprosy, again, you are considered so unclean, you can't even worship. You can't go offer sacrifices. You can't go near the temple. You're totally excommunicated from every activity, even for your spiritual health. And it is interesting, although the law made provisions for the cleansing of leprosy, there really was no recorded cure 
from anyone from leprosy except for supernatural healings that were told about in the Old Testament, such as the healing of Miriam, the sister of Moses, and the Gentile Syrian army commander in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. But notice the contrast, and I want you to notice here, how Jesus responds to the ten as he did with the one in chapter 5. It says here in Luke chapter 5, it says, While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed, and immediately his leprosy left him. Now, when we looked at that, we said, what an astounding thing. Jesus touched him. Obviously, he had healed him even before he touched him because you were forbidden by the law to touch. But Jesus touched. But it's really different here. Rather, we find something different. Rather than reaching out and touching these ten, their healing also, you notice, isn't immediate. He says to them, I want you to go on your way and present yourself to the priest. Make your way. I want you to see what's going on here. They were healed on their way to the priest, which means they were taking steps of faith, acts of faith. They're not healed yet. When they take off toward the priest, that's when the healing comes. And sometimes we know that with God. It takes the first steps. God says, I want you to go in this direction. But, Lord, I don't understand it. I'm not even healed yet. And he says, no, I want you to just take the steps. And when you do, you're going to find out I'm going to be with you. I'll give you what you need when you need it. I mean, can you imagine, though, what it must have been like for these ten guys? As they leave and they make their way to, to the priest, they're thinking to themselves, well, what else we got to lose? As they're walking along, they begin to notice they feel things that they haven't felt for a long time sensations, and they begin to look down at their skin, and they see that it's beginning to be cleansed. They watch those sores beginning to close up, and they watch themselves all of a sudden feeling their nerves and sensations that they had lost so long ago. And there they are, now they begin to awaken. These changes are taking place, and it must have been amazing for these guys. In contrast, you know, between the healing of the leper in chapter 5 and these guys, you, you do see some things that are really important for us as disciples to really understand. That God doesn't always work the same way, the same time, in the same place. God works in each of us as he knows. Sometimes he heals at a distance with just a word. Sometimes he heals with just a touch. There's one time where Jesus actually took some dirt and put some spit in it and applied it to a man's eyes. You see, sometimes he heals immediately, and sometimes he doesn't heal immediately. Sometimes he takes us out of the storm. Sometimes he takes us through the storm. The point I want to make is this. We are so prone to writing formulas and putting God in our little box of how God has to do this and how he has to do that. Lord, I know you did it for them that way. You should do it for me that way. Oh, no. God knows you, and you're different. You're unique. You see, we expect him to do for others just as he's done for us. You know what the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying this, my wisdom is greater than your wisdom. And when he works in our lives in certain ways, and it's very different from how he works with someone else, just trust him with that. 
God knows us intimately. He, he works with us uniquely. With all of his wisdom and knowledge, we should never, ever try to force him into our little box. Let God be God. Let his wisdom roll. Let him work according to his timing, his wisdom. And I'll tell you, if you do that, you'll be very blessed. Because he will show himself strong for you. And it may be very different from your brother or sister over on the other side. But let God work in your life and teach you what he wants to teach you. Now, one of them we're told in verse 15, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered and said, we're not all 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Remember that there are 10 lepers who have pled mercy for Jesus. They have begged for his mercies. There's 10 lepers we know are cleansed. How do we know they're cleansed? Well, Jesus says they were. He says, we're not all 10 cleansed. The astounding thing for Jesus is that out of the 10, that there's only one who returns to fall at his feet and give God the glory for what he's done. You see, he couldn't even make it to the priest. He says, man, I gotta go back to Jesus. I need to be with the one who just did this great work and he gives God all the glory and falls at the feet of Jesus for what God had done for him. And so Jesus asked the question in verse eight, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus says, where's the other nine? Are you is the only one who would come? That 10 would walk away in obedience? 10 would be healed that day and only one returns to Jesus to offer up thanks and praise? You see here, Jesus misses the praise of the other nine. Spurgeon writes this. He says, all 10 were willing to do a religious ceremony that is, to go to a priest. Only one was filled with true praise and thanksgiving. Eternal religious exercises are easy enough and common enough, but the internal matter, the drawing out of the heart and thankful love, how scarce a thing it is. Nine obey ritual where only one praises the Lord. They see. Jesus tells this one who returns, he said, I want you to stand up. He says, your faith has made you well. And really that word there, it means whole. You're just not healed physically. You're whole. You're complete spiritually. Listen, I'll tell you something. I'll take that any day of the week. Be whole. What good would it be to be healed physically and not be healed spiritually? And a lot of people, that's all they ever care about. Oh, Lord, just touch me physically. But they don't understand the greatest and most important thing to God is where your soul is. Praise and thanksgiving people should have a, such a greater emphasis upon our lives. Did you know that? Psalms 22.3 says, Yet you are holy, O you, who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. We should nurture these hearts of ours with thanksgiving, with praise. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. 
I wonder how much time you spend and just say, Lord, I praise you. I praise you, God, for what you've done in my life. I praise you for who you are and for all that you're doing. And Lord, I'm just so grateful for you. I found this ver these verses and I love them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. This is what Paul says. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And then he says this, for this is the will of God for you. God, what's your will? Well, he gives it to you, pretty simple. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That is keep communication with the Lord. Keep it alive. And then always give thanks in every circumstance. I wonder, do you take that time in your prayer life to really thank the Lord and say, Lord, I praise you? Or is it just kind of filling up the time and going on with your day? We used to sing that song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. What a great exercise. Boy, I want to encourage you. When you're in prayer this week and you're spending time, praise him. Just praise him. Give him thanks. You can look at all the things that are wrong, but there's something that happens when you begin to communicate with God your thanksgiving for him. You see, only one in ten returned and this is what's so interesting and what Luke, I believe, is really keying on here. It's a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan. Probably the rest of the all, the other lepers are probably Jews. We don't know for sure. But you have to understand that Jews and Samaritans had this deep-seated prejudice. They had animosities between them that had been going on for hundreds of years. And here's these lepers, they now have only commonality they have is their leprosy and misery loves company. So they're with others of the like. But when they hear about Jesus, they all have this same hope. Samaritan among the Jews. But to a normal Jew, you see, Samaritans were the worst kinds of Gentiles. Listen, it's important if you really want to understand the significance of a lot of the scripture in the New Testament is to understand who the Samaritans are in light of the Gospels. In chapter 9, we saw that when Jesus passed through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, that the Samaritans refused to give him any hospitality. Why? Because he was a Jew and he was heading on his way to Jerusalem. Such hatred, such animosity. James and John were so offended, if you remember, they wanted to call fire down out of heaven to burn the town to toast. That's where they were at. It was then that Jesus looked to them and he said, he rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. In chapter 10, Jesus gives this parable of the good Samaritan. You guys remember that one? What a powerful story. But the thing that offended the Jews the most is that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Samaritan? Samaritan? John chapter 4, we're given this beautiful account of Jesus meeting this woman at the well. Where is it? It's in Samaria. And she's a Samaritan woman. When all the disciples saw Jesus with this woman, they were shocked. Shocked not only that she was a woman, but she, that she was a Samaritan woman at that. 
And even the woman herself was shocked. She said in John 4, 9, she says, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, Jews considered Gentiles dogs. But they considered Samaritans as the worst, dirtiest, mangiest kind of street mongrel. They understood to, to be this. They have this understanding of these people with such a vast history of, of, of animosity and bitterness, which began hundreds of years ago. It goes all the way back to the kings. And when David's grandson, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, foolishly acts, and the whole 10 or 12 tribes are split into two. You have 10 tribes in the north that are now called Israel. You have two tribes in the south that are called Judah. The division of the kingdom then brings great consequence because the temple is located in that very lower region, the two tribes where Jerusalem is and Judah, and required the sacrifices be offered there alone. The 10 tribes in the north, that's where Samaria is, they broke away from temple worship. They created their own religious system which led them to idolatry. They appointed their own king. And as a result, they wrecked two golden calves to, for the people to worship along with their own priesthood. This is the history. And the main capital of all that is in Samaria. And the Lord had sent them prophets. He sent them Elisha. He sent them Elijah. And he warned them to return back to the Lord. But they continued to go apostate. So eventually... Just as God had warned, he sent them into captivity by the Assyrians. They take them captive. They displace the people. They bring the Assyrians into that region. They begin to cross, mix breed, and do all that they can do. And as a result, over all these years, the blood of Jews and Gentiles are intermixed. And there's this ongoing tension, this compromise of apostate people with an idolatrous past. So the Samaritans were considered enemies. And thus there's this deep-seated bitterness and this feelings of resentment, devout Jews toward the Samaritans, Samaritans toward the Jews. Now, knowing that context, I want you to see that's where Luke stresses that it's a Samaritan. This is a big deal because he wants you to know that this gospel is not exclusive. This gospel is inclusive for all who are sinners and in need of a Savior. You see, to God, there's just two kinds of people in the world. There's the lost and there's the found. Now, we know today they're trying to separate everybody. But with God, there's just two. You're either lost or you're found. You're a saint or you ain't. Either one. You're saved or you're unsaved. You're redeemed or you're not redeemed. You're destined to eternal glory in heaven or destined for eternity in hell. There's just two kinds of people. And that choice is up for each and every one. Luke wants you to know. Listen, even a Samaritan, even a Samaritan, that God offers salvation that is free from prejudice. It's free. It's offered to any, it's offered to all who would repent of their sin and confess Jesus as their Savior. It's powerful. You see, to God, all lives matter. And there's never to be a question. Every life matters. Your life matters, regardless of your past history, what your status is, your age, 
your gender. God sees you all. And this is a gospel that is for all. Boy, I pray, God, just give us that kind of love for this lost world. Free from all the prejudices of this world and say, God, you love sinners. He's after sinners. He came in the world to save sinners. That's all there is. That's the commonality every one of us in this room have this morning. We're all a bunch of sinners saved by the grace of God. Not one of us earned it. Not one of us deserves it. We're just simply here by the grace of God. Isn't that wonderful? Something you hold on to. By his mercy. You see, the Samaritan leper was made whole. And I guess I could ask you the question, are you whole? Is your life complete with God? Not just physically, but in every way, spiritually. Are you at peace with God? Because if you're here this morning and maybe you wonder whether you're one of those people who kind of falls outside the lines, I want you to know, no. As long as you're breathing, he would call you to repent and to come to him in faith. Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you, Lord, I do praise you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us, Lord, such an understanding of your heart for the lost. Lord, in essence, every one of us had leprosy. Every one of us, Lord, were pathetic display of sin. And yet, God, by your mercy and grace, you have loved us and you've received us. This morning, God, I just pray that our hearts as your people, Lord, would be filled with praise for what you've done for us. Lord, we could simply just settle for being religious, but I know, God, that you want to do so much more. You want us to know you, to praise you, to worship you, to grow and mature in you. Father, we thank you this morning. If you're here this morning and you need prayer at all, maybe the Lord's telling you this morning he wants to make you whole. Maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's a relational situation. But maybe this morning what the Lord would have you do is take the steps. You take the steps. Let faith arise. Let something happen in you that stirs you to say, you know what, God, I don't understand that, but I'm going to trust you. And we have people here today that want to pray with you. We desire to pray with you. And especially if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. I want you to know he loves you and he would draw you as close as any one of us. He doesn't see any of us as something more special than the other. We're just all recipients of his love and grace. And he wants you today.
And if that's you, I pray today you make that commitment. And we're here, I'll be up here just after the service. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you, give you a Bible, get you started. We love to disciple people. And so if that's you this morning, may you just respond to God.